Hey friends, this is David. Welcome to the Karam Deo podcast. We're a small church community here in Denver who's trying to figure out how to follow Jesus in our current cultural context with all kinds of chaos going on, global diseases and pandemics and all kinds of fun like that. So we have been in a season this August of gathering for corporate seminar spaces, kind of traditional church gatherings. And we have one week left before we kind of commission each other out into the fall season of scattering. So that's been a big theme is unpacking even these concepts in terms of scattered versus gathered this August and trying to give some paradigms and frameworks for how this this blend and balance of both can help foster a vibrant relationship with Jesus and with the world and our vocations and with people. Um, So as is the main topic for all church communities, we've been really diving into this concept of being apprentices of Jesus or following Jesus. And in the previous couple weeks, Matt and I each gave a message first on trying to hear God's voice and then trying to engage people. So if you haven't listened to those, I would encourage you to go back and listen. I think it'll give some good context for what I'm going to share today, talking about this idea of a rule of life. And my goal today is to get a little more practical and help help set us up with a paradigm to make a scattered season really meaningful and rich and not just another another form or um, yeah treating treating scattering in small house churches as if that in and of itself is a solution for church and I think a core value for us in the last three years as a young church has been to be always willing to adapt and change and try different forms or different modes of meeting as a church body in order to go after the deeper values of what it means to really follow Jesus in a, in a vibrant, holistic way in all of life. So that's my little intro and recap. Today we're diving into rule of life and the power of spiritual habits. So I'm going to start kind of a point of departure here. We're going to look at the first few chapters of Luke and specifically one verse in Luke 4, 14 through 16. So just to set the stage a little, opening of Luke's gospel, we have the narration of the birth story of Christ. And then we have this really unique uh, kind of encounter with Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. And his family has done a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And then the whole family leaves and basically Jesus gets left behind and, and is found in the temple, in the house of the Lord. And then right after that, Jesus, we jump some years and Jesus is going through baptism. Uh, John the Baptist it's calling people out into the wilderness to a baptism of repentance, a baptism of purification, a baptism of, in water. And then we see also a spirit baptism as the, uh, the imagery of the dove descending on Christ and hearing the Father's voice speaking identity. And then from there, immediately Jesus is led into the wilderness for a season of fasting and temptation. And then in Luke 4, we pick up and he's returned into into Nazareth and he walks into the synagogue and here we have verse 14 Luke 4:14 4, 
Jesus returned, to, oh sorry, to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. And then from Galilee, he travels up, and it says, He went to Nazareth, verse 16, where he had been brought up, his hometown. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And here he then stands to read and um, reads this famous verse from the prophet Isaiah about the spirit of the Lord descending on him because he's been anointed to proclaim good news to the poor and on and on. And the key phrase I want to actually highlight in today, it's kind of one of those phrases we just read over and don't think about. But it's this little prepositional phrase, as was his custom, right there at the end of verse 16. And I think as we dive into talking about a rule of life, there's a potential danger here of this concept coming off as very religious or religious in the definition or sense of legalistic, where God's view, love, value over a human being is contingent upon their performative abilities in these religious um, actions or religious practices or um, certain ethical moral actions and and I think that's the furthest thing from the truth of the heart of God and at the same time I think it's really important that we stop and recognize that Jesus is extremely religious I think in the Gospels we often have this sense of Christ being anti-religion because he's He's prophetically challenging and undermining the power structures that the current religious order has set in place. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees and um, other people in political power. So obviously there's a clear critique and prophetic challenge that Jesus brings to religious people. But just in that little narration of the opening verses of Luke's gospel, Jesus is... His whole life is oriented and orbiting around the religious heritage of Judaism. He's, at age 12, he's brought to the temple and he's, he's dedicated with a sacrifice, in the guidelines and under the authority of the sacrificial system. And then we have him right there later as an adult going through the sacrament of baptism. We'll talk about that word a little later today. And then leading him out into the wilderness for a very religious practice of fasting for 40 days. I think um, if, if any of us went home and told our family or friends that we were doing a 40-day fast, uh, I think that would be categorized as a pretty religious thing to do. Religious not in the sense of legalism, where your identity, value, and worth is contingent upon performance, but religious in the sense of devotional and religious in the sense of being willing to practice and, and follow traditions that have been passed down. So we have to obviously do some, some redefin, redefining of that word religious for it to be palatable and helpful to us. Um, but once we've done that, it's important to realize that Jesus is deeply religious. His whole worldview and life is shaped by these set practices and rhythms that have been passed down all the way up to that verse in chapter 4 that we just read where he steps into the synagogue on a Sunday as was his custom. 
And for those that maybe grew up in the church, I think it's it's maybe a little shocking for us to realize like Jesus would have been the kid raised on Veggie Tales. These are these little Bible cartoons um, that were produced, and they were the epitome of mid '90s and early 2000s cultural Christianity, right? But we need to realize that Jesus was raised in religious culture. Um, and we're often so quick in the modern day to be skeptical and critical of, of kind of cheesy Christian culture in America. Um, but I think it's important to establish that before jumping into this combo on rule of life. We need to realize that all of us have a rule of life. That is, all of us have set habits and practices that we give our time and energy to it's just a question of whether or not we have reflected upon those habits and they're intentionally orienting us in worship towards a specific God or being or thing or idea, and if they're forming us into a specific type of person. So in our, cult, in our community, we talk a lot about breaking down the dichotomy of secular versus sacred spaces and rhythms. And historically, the church has a bad rap of elevating spiritual sacred things or spaces or people or events and devaluing quote secular spaces people and events and that's very bad we don't we don't want to let that false dualism creep into our spirituality but it's also really helpful to realize not only is that a false duality because Christ is present in all of those secular spaces, but it's also false in the sense that all humans are fundamentally spiritual religious creatures. We're all fundamentally creatures oriented by worship, not just uh, rationality in our brains. So in that sense, it's not just that we bring the spiritual to to the secular or the sacred to the secular, it's that the secular is already spiritual. And again, the question is not if it's spiritual, it's what type of spirituality is present in those secular practices. And so today, as we engage this conversation of rule of life, we're kind of going to be, I'm going to be inviting you to do almost a spiritual audit um, with this assumption in mind that everything we do as humans is fundamentally a spiritual act. And it is fundamentally shaping us and orienting us in a certain direction, towards a certain God, a certain idea, a certain being, and it's fundamentally shaping us into certain types of people. So, all right, so the first kind of bullet point I want to dive into a little is this question of how we change. And this is obviously a big, big, big topic. I'm going to try and just hit it in in a couple minutes here. I think predominant You know, if you go out on the street and you interview people in the West, the the predominant worldview in our American culture is that we change our beliefs in order to change our behaviors, or we change our beliefs in order to change our actions. And and I would I wouldn't deny that this is at least part of the equation. I mean, there are entire fields of therapy built around this model. It's called cognitive behavioral therapy, this idea that if we can identify false or wrong thoughts and thinking patterns, we can replace them and change them and produce 
different outcomes, different actions, a different emotional and physical experience of life. But I would argue today, as I often argue, that it, this is not the whole story, nor even the primary part of the story of how human beings change. So focusing on this method of changing people or changing behavior by changing thoughts is rooted in a, a an anthropology or a view of what it means to be human that is that is highly rational and highly cognitive. I love James K.A. Smith is a Christian philosopher who uses the phrase uh, brains on sticks and he argues over and over in many of his writings and books that the West has for hundreds of years defined human beings as brains on sticks, as homo sapien, as wise man. And in our Christian culture, in our church communities, we often end up absorbing this cultural framework and trying to approach discipleship and, and spiritual maturity or spiritual growth in a rationalistic way. So if you want to grow in something, you need to hear more preaching, more teaching, read more books, go to more seminars. And, and I think all of us could, if we do an honest assessment of our own life, look backwards and reflect and realize that method of change is at best very, very slow. Um, in early childhood development and learning, they say it takes a child 12 meaningful encounters with a new word before they become fluent and confident in using that word. So if it takes 12 meaningful encounters with just one single new word, how many more encounters does it take a human being with cognitive, rational information or teaching for it to actually sink in and bring about change in behaviors, change a changed life? So again, I'm not saying that that doesn't work or doesn't happen, but I don't think it's the most effective or powerful way of change. It's just a part of that story. So I think I first got put on to this realization um, while in my early 20s, I was working for a nonprofit missions organization and helping run these intensive six-month training schools. And I didn't realize it at the time but these training schools were fundamentally um, monastic experiences. So students from all over the world and all different cultural backgrounds, usually in, in between 18 to 25 years old, fly into this uh, base, this physical location, where they're, the base might be located in a city or a town, but to some degree, socially, this base is a little bit separate and isolated from the culture around it. And once arriving, they are thrown into a boot camp of embodied practices. So similar to the military or the Coast Guard or the Navy or anything like that, they show up, all they have is one suitcase of stuff, they're introduced to about a hundred strangers and they're put into barracks or uh, dorm rooms, usually filled with bunk beds with eight people to a room sharing one bathroom. And for the next three months, they experience a common life or a common rule, similar to, in the, in the history of the church, what we would call a monastic order. And these monastic orders were often defined by a rule of life. So again, I've used that phrase a whole bunch here. All it means is um, 
a set established list of principles and practices that the community is committed to. And in, in this missions organization, this training environment I was working in and leading these schools, we didn't use that language and it was, we weren't very self-aware even as leaders that we were doing that but built right into the curriculum of this learning, this modular learning experience, were all these parameters of a minimum number of hours a week that, that students had to spend in community service, a minimum number of hours a week they had to volunteer and do manual labor on the base to help the base operate and function financially, a minimum number of hours for worship and prayer, a minimum number of team time hours where they're broken into small groups and uh, to, to practice various activities, all centered around vulnerability and intimate connection. And then also the biggest one, a minimum number of hours of sitting under biblical teaching. So biblical theological reflection. Um, and I think myself, as I went through this program and then helped lead them, I put all the eggs in the basket of those teaching hours. So lectures were usually 9 a.m. to noon, five days a week, 15 hours a week of lectures. So again, coming from the West, my mode of thinking of how people change is we need to renew their mind, like Paul says in Romans 12, verse 2, um, we need to transform and renew their mind to produce the right actions, behaviors, a transformed, healthy, flourishing life. Um, but what I was naive to in all those years was the fact that right before Paul says that in Romans 12, he reads this Romans 12 verse one, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And only then does he go on and say, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it's that the renewing of the mind follows after the not conforming to the patterns, the habits, the culture, the practices, the embodied experiences of those around you. And so as Christians, Jesus modeled and Paul is calling us to not only changing our minds so that we can change our actions, but often to start with changing our actions to to establish and set different patterns in our lives. And that these different patterns, these different embodied practices, we could call them sacraments or liturgies, and we'll talk about those words here in a minute. Setting those in place is what catalyzes the space for the renewing of the mind, which for sure will continue this process of growth and change and transformation and a changed life. Um, but it doesn't, I don't think it functions in a linear fashion. I think the two, almost like a washing machine, are just, they're feeding off of each other. They're happening at the same time. And in some ways, that's the whole framework that Matt and I have been inviting and, and laying out for the church here in, in August, is that a following Jesus fundamentally starts with trying to hear God's voice and trying to participate in bringing the kingdom, trying to engage people, trying to get involved in kingdom mischief, right? And it's in the process of that participation that God begins to transform and change us. It's not a cognitive 
journey of getting all the right knowledge and all the right biblical learning first and then you get to change your behavior and participate the two are happening in concert in conjunction mutually along the way um and and i i watched this really starkly play out in the years after leaving that organization that i worked with i go back about three times a year and help debrief some of these these training schools to prepare people to transition well to university and vocations and life after missions. And I've watched over and over that people who are unaware of the power of practices and habits, they, they transition back to a new place, a new community, new practices, new culture, a new as the 20th century philosopher Charles Taylor called it a new social imaginary. So that is a, a social imaginary is kind of the fabric of reality, the social perception of what's real and true and good that is created by a culture, a social group's kind of rule of life. And Charles Taylor doesn't use that language rule of life, but really that's what he's getting at is every social group has a spoken or unspoken rule of life a set culture, a set of practices, a set of values that are forming and shaping its participants. And, and I watch people as they transition from this intensely beautiful Christian social imaginary uh, created by these discipleship training schools. And then they transition back to a new city, a new school, a new place, back to their hometown or a new town. And all of a sudden, all the beliefs and all the change and all the health that came out of that first season they start to feel disillusioned and they start to question if it's even real and they don't realize that they have placed themselves in a new monastic order a new rule of life that is guiding them possibly in a direction counter or antithetical to the one they were just in so let's talk about a couple of these words um, sacraments and liturgy and really what I'm getting at here my whole point of bringing these words into the combo is to redefine them a little they feel some of us might even be having an allergic reaction just after I said those words um, but my, my heart and my point is simply this the things we do do something to us my friend who works in that missions organization Liam Barnes he always says this the things we do do something to us. So these are very churchy words, but let's define them a little. So sacraments historically in the church has been, has been a, a word that's used to talk about practices that mediate a unique level of God's grace. And within different traditions, uh, different denominations within the body of Christ, people have debated for thousands of years philosophically what those even mean is is there actually grace present in the practice is it present in the physical objects used in that practice or ceremony um, people have debated whether there's two sacraments or seven sacraments or 12 sacraments and the reality is I'm not going to attempt to solve those debates or, or even really weigh in on them in two minutes here but I think we can suffice it to say that a sacrament is a passed on tradition or practice that serves as a vehicle, a means for the empowering presence of God 
to reach us where we are in our bodies. Or you could say it even simpler. Sacraments are practices that invite us to participate in a certain story. And historically, the two sacraments that the church has almost universally practiced and agreed upon, although there's little debates of how to practice them, are the Lord's Supper and baptism. Baptism by water and spirit, this is the the entry point sacrament for a believer, someone who is making a commitment for the first time to follow Jesus, to become an apprentice of Jesus, they enter into the body of Christ through the sacrament, the embodied practice of baptism. And then the Lord's Supper is the continual renewal and reminder to the believer that they are a part of that very body. It's almost a, a weekly or monthly or however often you do it, it's a it's a reminder and a recommitment of that initial baptismal commitment. And it's, it really, they both represent a, a fundamental embodied identification with the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So, sacraments. Practices that invite us to participate in a specific story. Now, another word that comes up a lot here is liturgy. Liturgy, in the general religious sense, is broader than sacraments. I would say it includes the sacraments, but it's not limited to the sacraments. So, liturgies refer to the practices, the songs, the words, the prayers that a spiritual community repeats time and time again when they gather. And different denominations, different church backgrounds might have different liturgies. And... The irony here, again, is even if you have participated or maybe grew up in a church that is, quote, non-denominational or is, is on some level intentionally trying to distance themselves from liturgies, from the Roman Catholic practices, um, from the Episcopalian church's weekly prayers, or from whatever, a, a, a higher church denominations set scripted prayers and worship, even when we intentionally try to distance ourselves and say, no, we're non-denominational, we don't have any liturgies, inevitably, if people are gathering and, and doing some form of worship and someone's leading that space, they are creating new liturgies. And they might change every week, but they're still liturgies. They're still embodied, shared practices that a community of people come and gather around and participate in. So, some of us might dislike these words. Perhaps you were forced to do these practices, or worse, worse even than that, maybe your sense of, of cleanliness or, or your sense of intimacy with God was made to be contingent upon your performance of these, almost like a, almost like a checklist a behavioral checklist that you had to follow to be to be all good and right with God. And so hope that wasn't your history, but if it was, I'm sorry. But I still think these words are useful for helping us see it that there's a brilliance and a wisdom embedded in them that goes cross culturally back into the history of the church. Because sacraments and liturgies understand that we as human beings are not merely changed through our brains and through new information. We actually fundamentally change our beliefs by changing our actions. So in the West, 
Again, we reverse that and we say that we change our beliefs to change our actions. But the church historic in these passed down sacraments and liturgies understand that we change our beliefs by changing our actions. We change what we believe by participating in a different story. And so in many ways, as Matt and I have been inviting us as a church this fall to participate in this story, to, to see ourselves, to see our lives as part of the New Testament story, the Old Testament story, to see that we're living in an era, if the book of Acts had continued, we're in chapter 29. It's the longest chapter of the whole book. And we are living in the wake of this story so that when we read scripture, we start to see ourselves as co-conspirators and, and co-actors, not just passive observers trying to rationally understand this book, but that the book would suck us in. It would, it would catch us up into this story. And so part of our church rhythm that we're establishing, part of our church rule of life, We'll be inviting everyone in the community every at the beginning of every fall and again at the beginning of the spring to do a spiritual audit of your life. What is your current reflected upon or unreflected upon rule of life? What are the practices that you're giving your time and your energy to? And how are those practices or habits? What kind of beliefs are they cultivating in you? And I would argue many of those beliefs will be unreflected and almost subconscious. So I've posted on our church website, if you wanna go there with me now as you're listening. Um, so this is cdchurch.org. And up at the top, I've put a tab titled Regule, which comes from the Latin for Regule Fide, which is where we get the phrase rule of life. It's the rule of faith. And um, if you click on that tab, Regule, You'll see right down here, there's a header. It says, everything is liturgy. And the whole argument I'm making here today is that um, whether you like those words sacraments or liturgy, all of life is fundamentally small s sacramental and small l liturgical. It's just inevitable. It's, it's how we were wired and created as embodied spiritual creatures, that that's how we work. And so... There's a chart on here that I totally stole from a great book by Justin Early called The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction. Um, and I have the, the details on that book if you want to look it up on Amazon or some other platform. I have that on the website there as well. But I, I posted and stole this table that he wrote in his book. And on the left column, he has a bunch of habits or liturgies that he identified in his own life. Things like waking up exhausted and sleeping through his alarm because he never goes to bed on time. And then he takes some time and reflects on the wrong belief that that cultivates in him. And again, the, the column on the right for the wrong beliefs cultivated, we might never actually say this out loud, or we might, we might even try to argue and deny that, that that's true, that that belief is there. But he's, he's kind of pressing us to be brutally honest with the, how does the way we live our life, the habits we have, how do they form us and, and shape our beliefs about ourselves, about others, and about God? And, um, and I think it's a powerful exercise for us to practice. So I've put on here some questions, and I'd invite you to take you know, 15, 20 minutes some morning this week before work, uh, before you get up and look at your phone, 
grab a coffee, sit down with a journal and, and read through these. And I, wanna, I want you to ask yourself, what ones do you resonate with? Or could you in your journal, could you write out some of your habits and liturgies and some of the beliefs they're fostering and cultivating? And all the ones in this table here are, are to some degree, I'd say negative, um, but you could do this with a positive practice or a positive habit in your life too. Um, so they don't have to be negative. And so I'd invite you to do this activity um, leading into the fall season here, kind of participate in this, what I'd call a spiritual audit. And, and really what, what this is all getting at is that your system is perfectly designed to give you the results you're getting. You hear me say that phrase all the time, stole it from this business guy named W.E. Deming. Um, but the emotional, behavioral way that you go through life is the net product of your past experiences and your present rhythms and habits. So if you want to start seeing greater health, transformation and change in your life and the lives of your loved ones and, and those around you, um, it starts with doing an audit of how you are living, the behaviors and habits you're participating in. So what are your small s sacraments and small l liturgies? And yeah, and, and this is the invitation and, and offering of this framework of a rule of life. And we just invite you guys, try, we're trying to make this as simple as possible. There's about a thousand different ways we could break down this idea of rule of life. And in many ways, it's an invitation to a lifestyle, not just a program. And um, it's, it's a framework that might take years to really get comfortable with living into it. And the, the framework we're trying to kind of present to make this as simple as possible, if you scroll down on the website there, I have a few more questions and then I guide you through what, I, what we have kind of honed in on over the last few years of the three loves language. So it's loving God, loving people and loving the world. And again, there's lots of different ways we could think about how we spend our time and energy and space. But this is one framework that I think is really simple and beautiful and hopefully helpful. And, and I say this all the time, but in reality, our love and worship for God is not isolated to um, spiritual, quote, spiritual practices like prayer, worship, through music, um, reading scripture, Sabbathing. It's not... It's not only in that, that those spaces that we love God, we also love God as we express our love towards people. So these are not categorically distinct, um, but I think the value of each is important to think about separately. And then we know that in all of life, we're, we're loving God, we're loving people, and we're loving the world. Um, those circles merge and really are almost co-incentric. So the language that we use um, to think about these are devotional rhythms, communal rhythms, and missional rhythms. And I've put some examples on there and of what it might look like for you to commit to some, some daily devotional rhythms this fall, or some weekly communal rhythms, or a weekly missional rhythm. And these are not meant to be limiting. Uh, these are meant to just give you some some sense of an idea of what it could look like and and matt and i would encourage people to start small and simple don't try to do too much too fast 
don't turn this into a religious checklist of behavior modification, um, but to really engage this in a place of intimacy, of trying to hear God, trying, trying to invite the one who knows us better than we know ourselves um, to really form and shape our lives so that, so that we're being intentional about our formation. So I'm just going to close and pray a little blessing over you. And yeah, I invite you guys to spend some time with Jesus this week. Uh, reflecting on your rule of life to do a spiritual audit. So, Father, we thank you for your patience with us and your kindness. And we, we just lift up um, our world, our, our, our country, our friends, our family, our cities that we dwell in, our jobs, our places of employment, our vocations. This is 2020 has been a crazy year of stirring and purification. And um, Lord, we just ask that you'd continue to shake everything that is not firm and steady and lasting. And we just we just place our hope in you in this season. And instead of freaking out and clinging to fear and control, we just say, Lord, you're capable of redeeming and using all things. So even in a season where where Christians are forced to not gather in large groups. We thank you for your wisdom and beauty that actually the church is not contained or defined by any one form. It's not contained or defined by buildings or church, church structures, um, but it is a living people that is woven together by you, by their shared reality in you and by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so I just bless and pray over my friends this fall as we scatter into smaller pods and groups of people. And I just pray a releasing of any guilt or shame over anyone. We just pray that people would um, find rhythms that fit their comfort level, uh, a sense of safety and peace, and that no one's being asked to do anything that makes them feel endangered or unsafe. So we just pray a release and, and just say that you're free to to follow your convictions and your, your conscience as you set these rhythms. And I just pray, Lord, that you would be speaking and guiding. We just acknowledge that you know us better than we know ourselves. So we place our trust in you. We submit to you. Um, and we ask, Lord, would you help us reshape our lives? Would you help us enter into patterns and rhythms of grace that would form us into the people we long to become? Um, we just say we love you, Jesus. I pray that you'd be speaking clearly and creatively in new ways. And if anyone has felt discouragement with trying to hear your voice in the past, we just pray breakthrough. We just break off. We, we acknowledge the truth that you taught in Scripture, Jesus, that your sheep hear your voice. So that might not look like what other people have experienced, but we just pray a releasing and a freedom to hear your voice in fresh ways. Yeah, we love you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you guys for joining and tuning in. Have a good week. Be blessed.